we're going to need to start vaccinating. And probably uh, there, are, there are four or five really good vaccines, recombinant vaccines that have come out now that uh, basically they've been cloned into HVT. They've got some cloned into pox. They've got some cloned into Newcastle. And uh, I think what the U.S. is going to do is await and see to these other countries like uh, China and Russia and Europe to see how they vaccinate and see how they control it. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming soon. The brightest minds of the global poultry industry will be right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Adiseo, Protecta, DSM, and JVI. Good afternoon. Uh, this is Karen Grogan, and I'm your host this afternoon for the Poultry Podcast Show. Uh, we want to welcome you to this episode. We have um, a very exciting guest for today. Dr. Joe Giambrone is a professor emeritus in Auburn University's Department of Poultry Science um, with a joint appointment over in the College of Veterinary Medicine also. Um, Joe has a uh, over 40 year career in research in virology, um, immunology, and epidemiology of poultry diseases. Uh, he has serviced really the global poultry industry with a lot of things that we deal with on a daily basis. So we have invited Joe today to talk about a variety of subjects. Um, so welcome, Joe. How are you today? I'm wonderful. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Excellent. You survive in the summer heat here in the South? It's, it's difficult, but I've been going 45 years with it, so I've gotten used to it. Right. And where are you originally from, Joe? Because I don't think it's Alabama. Okay. I grew up uh, the outskirts of Philadelphia. Okay. That's what I thought. And then where did you do all of your training? What's your background? Like, you know, when you're talking to students, where where have you done all of your degrees? Well, I went to the University of Delaware to be a marine biologist, and I found out that it, it was oceanography. So I took a course in uh, poultry health from this fella, and he was a veterinarian, graduated from the University of Georgia, and I really enjoyed it. That was my junior year. And then my senior, I took another course from him in uh, virology. And then he said, did you want to go on, you want to go on for a master's? I said, yeah, wonderful. So the, one of the first, uh, the, the, the first project I had was looking at um, coronaviruses in chickens, infectious bronchitis virus, looking at um, developing a vaccine against an antigenic variant, which was at the first time that it had been done. And then the second part, I, that was with uh, Jack, or, um, Bob Eckrode. Then Bob I Eckrode. went to with, yeah, that's right. Then I went with Jack Rosenberg. And and what and what just just for the conversation, what antigenic variant was that that you were working on then? It was called JMK, and it had to do with um, it came from Delmarva, and the individual's name was Hiram Lasher, who was with Sterwin. And um, this is going to be a poultry medicine history lecture. <laughs> yeah, he gave us. Um, isolation units to do this development of this vaccine. And uh, it was with he and Jack Rosenberger and Bob Eckert. So I learned a lot. So then the next project was uh, finishing up was going to um, Chesapeake Bay to uh, isolate 
um, viruses from uh, hunter killed birds in the Chesapeake Bay. And um, yeah, we really enjoyed doing that. We isolated a number of viruses uh, that didn't cause any disease in uh, birds, but I found out that years later that the, these viruses can then spill over and cause disease in poultry. And then I guess that's why they were really interested doing it. It wasn't until about 15, 20 years ago until there was outbreaks in Delmarva, which over the years then now we have them all over the world. But uh, um, when I went to, after I got my master's, he said, well, why don't you go to the University of Georgia in this College of Veterinary Medicine Poultry Disease Research Center? And I said, oh yeah. So I was invited there by Caswell Edson, who was involved in uh, Merrick's disease vaccination. So we started doing that work. I really enjoyed it. While we were doing the work, the chickens broke with infectious bursal disease virus. And so we, we found out that uh, the ones that were vaccinated all end up having uh, Merrick's disease, the ones that, because they had bursal disease, the ones that didn't have bursal disease, they ended up being immune. So that started the whole thing with immune suppression. So I published a number of articles there on the effect of uh, infectious bursal disease virus on Newcastle disease, bronchitis, uh, coccidiosis, uh, Merrick's disease. And so then there was a job open in Auburn and I actually didn't know where it was. <laughs> so, so they said- Sure, they don't hold that against you now. Yeah. So I went over there and the people were really friendly to me. And they said, well, we need someone to teach poultry diseases in the College of Veterinary Medicine, but we also want you to do research and outreach. And um, it was good because the person I had replaced was just a, a teacher. So they were able then to give me funds to do, to have the laboratory. They gave me funds to develop an SPF house and another one to, to do the research. And so it really went well for me. Uh, years later, I got back into the, um, the coronaviruses with bronchitis. I did a, um, a uh, sabbatical in, uh, in Melbourne, there in the College of Veterinary Medicine. Oh. Yes, and they had a- Did you and, work with like Trevor Bagus? Yes, I did. He invited me over there. It was really, really interesting. He was uh, a character. He was, you know, unfortunately- He's a great guy, COVID. I know. He, he was. They, they had a virus there that caused ne uh, nephrosis. And um, yes, and so they were, they were interested and it was not controlled by the vaccine. So. Basically, we went there and did the um, first uh, sequencing of the spike protein gene from this, this virus. And it was, it was, I learned a lot. Actually, that's where I learned about molecular virology. And it, I really enjoyed it. Came back to Auburn, um, continued bursal disease, working with an, a number of, a lot of vaccine companies were, uh, were helping me do this kind of work. They were giving me the money. Uh, we went with Select, we went with, uh, I guess then it was Salisbury and then it was Fort Dodge and then it was. Back, back when bursal disease vaccines were a commodity, like everybody had like, you know, all these different uh, bursal disease vaccines. Everybody wanted to prove theirs was the best. Yeah, that was really good. And, and I guess with Select, they were really the ones that came out with uh, the, um, actually they took what was the Lucard strain. And that Lucre strain then became really the first vaccine that didn't cause disease because the other ones that are out there, were, they were pretty uh, virulent. So uh, we worked with that. Also, they, they were really good with 
developing tremendous titer to HVT. And so using that amount that they were good at, they were able to outcompete all the other pharmaceutical companies because they were making it such high titers. But anyway, so I did continue with bursal disease, working with Kalen Cookson and a lot of other good people. And then um, we, I, did, I did some more bronchitis, but what really I moved into was real viruses. And the real viruses were at that time were, were causing, you know, everybody knew about Jack Rosenberg and others about viral arthritis, but we found out that these were also causing uh, uh, an enteric disease. And so we, we did um, a lot of work there with little vaccines, and we found out that uh, vaccinating the pullets, just like we did with bursal disease with two live and killed, the chickens would then hatch out with maternal immunity, and that would produce um, some good, good immunity. But years later at the University of Georgia with a number of other people found out that there are antigenic variants. And so they had to develop a whole new amounts of vaccines. And, and the work that was there um, done by the people at the University and still Georgia still is, they, they're at the forefront of uh, looking at these uh, variant viruses. And um, so uh, then I started working with influenza and influenza virus, um, how we got involved in that is that um, the virus then was, um, it hadn't been around in the U.S. for a long time, mainly other countries. It uh, had all of a sudden started causing some outbreaks. And uh, so basically I got money to do more of these uh, surveillance. And so we were going to um, really hunter kill, um, uh, uh, really they were, they were, um, where these these uh, um, birds were then, um, I, I, I can't really think of the word, but anyway, uh, we were swabbing uh, the, the cloaca and the um, oral and cloacal for these viruses and then isolating them and characterizing them back there. And you know, the, the wildlife refugees, that's what I couldn't think about. Now, is that is that in cooperation with like uh, the US um, fish and game or like, how are, how are you accessing hunter harvested birds? Okay. Well, first off, we got a grant where the University of Georgia and another many, I guess it was a $5 million grant and universities all across the U.S. And uh, I, was, I was involved in surveillance. Individuals in Georgia were doing other things. So uh, we had, that gave us the money to do the work. Now, we then, uh, we had to get with these USDA people to go to um, not USDA, but the the wildlife people, they when we were at these hunter killed areas, they were then would allow us to do the swabs of the birds which had already been killed, and uh, so then we isolated a, lot, a number of viruses, but luckily we never had any H5s, and they were not uh, or H7s, they're not pathogenic. But what it showed us was that the viruses were prevalent in wild free flying birds, uh, and and, and now, unfortunately, we're seeing that it's spilled over again into poultry, and it's become a, a worldwide phenomena as far as the, and the, the problem with influenza, as I see it now, it's actually gone through the summertime, where we normally think spring is the end. That was one thing. The other thing we saw is we saw outbreaks in wild free-flying birds, which had not seen that before. So what do you think has changed in terms of, do you think it's... Um 
waterfowl movements? Do you think that it's the virus itself? Do you think, um, what, what is your sort of working knowledge in terms of these influenza viruses? Like, why are we seeing like buzzard die-offs? Like that doesn't typically happen in, in influenza outbreaks. Yeah, well, this, this virus, uh, Swain and others have shown that it's the Eurasian virus that we saw in uh, 2016, which caused the problems. Uh, but the fact that it's gone through in warm weather and it's gone to the others, I suspect that uh, Swain and others will probably have to go and do some sequencing of the H's and N's. That tail end of the H's where you have a run of basic amino acids or other things, it's something about that virus has changed to allow it to, um, to go on longer. And I don't know that if it's changed in the genetics of the bird. I mean, that's possible. I think obviously the, the virus has changed so that, it, that it's, uh, these wild free-flying birds normally get the virus just in the enteric tract and they shed it that way. And, and they don't get the virus um, causing respiratory disease and spreading of viremic. But now it seems to do that. And, uh, you know, that work will have to do a lot of sequencing. And then people at Georgia and other places that have BL3 labs will be able then to go in and infect birds, which, you know, even though I was, I'm retired now, but before that, we didn't have a BL3 anyway. So but that work's going to have to be done. They're going to have to take that virus. There are probably multiple viruses out there, infect the birds, do sequencing, uh, re-isolate the virus, complete coax postulate. Then compare it to the 2016 virus, the sequence, and see how it's in fact different. Right. So, in terms of you know, sort of on the on the global front, uh, you know, we see influenza endemic in many countries, and and I know you've done surveillance in those countries where it's endemic, um, and and there's you know arguments on control strategies. And, and I know that, um, you know, discussions are, are ongoing in, in the U.S. and then within OIE. Um, and uh, there's even changes within the definition of what's considered poultry. Like we have a, you know, backyard fox are considered non-poultry now in terms of definitions for, for OIE. So, um, you know, what, what, how, let's say if these viruses do become endemic, how do you suggest to these areas, Europe, United States, Canada, you know, large production areas, how should they, how do we control this? Well, I think what we're, we're seeing now, especially in Europe and a lot of other countries is um, they're vaccinating the um, free range birds because those are going to be, they're going to be, have a mixture of the wild free flying birds with those uh, birds that are free range which can then go back. So um, the, a lot of veterinarians and other people are upset with the culling because we've culled out so many birds with influenza and a number of, of veterinarians, not only in the US, but around the world are saying that uh, we're gonna need to start vaccinating. And probably uh, there, there are four or five really good vaccines, recombinant vaccines that have come out now that uh, Basically, they've been cloned into HVT. They've got some cloned into pox. They've got some cloned into Newcastle. And uh, I think what the U.S. is going to do is a wait and see to these other countries like uh, China and Russia and Europe to see how they vaccinate and see how they control it. 
the one reason we don't vaccinate in the U.S. is because of embargo. Now, the, the world animal, it, I guess the OIE doesn't exist anymore. It's now the world health and animals. But um, they, in the past, saying that you can compartmentalize it so that if there was an outbreak in California, other countries shouldn't embargo uh, you know, uh, birds from the southeast. But there are countries that don't, they don't uh, subscribe to that. They're just going to do whatever they're going to do, and they'll still embargo the whole country. And the other problem is that in the U.S. we have the most amount of basic breeders, and we're sending chicks and eggs around the world. And if we if those were embargoed, we'd have a really big problem. So um, uh, I re I really think in the future that we're probably going to um, to see some sort of vaccination of um, the the birds that are you know that are that are out in a free range now. As far as large commercial layer farms that have five million birds, I don't see that ever being them being vaccinated. But uh, I think it's going to have to be some give and take. Uh, and and in terms of it, like implementation, you know, what what size flocks are you d talking about vaccinating? Like, you know, Susie's five chickens in her backyard, or are you talking like people that have a hundred plus? Um, I think these are commercial companies that, that have up to 10% of the birds are free range. So, those so you're are talking the ones about poultry that would have access to the outdoors, like birds that are marketed under organic, um, yes. things that are marketed exactly. under. So they would be commercial production, but things that have access to the outdoors. Yeah, I, I think that's where we're going. But, you know, when that's going to happen, if we have one or two more of these years in a row where we're getting millions and millions of birds die and be culled, the sooner or later we have to do, um, come out with a, with a new answer. And, and in terms of the, the products um, that you're discussing, um, you know, I think there's discussion starting um, within the U.S. as well. Um, what products do we have available um, e either that we could import, you know, USDA regulations don't really allow, um, you know, they're, they're fairly strict. Um, what, what could we get quickly? Well, I mean, uh, the commercial companies that are make, making vaccines, uh, they also exist in this country. They're just not allowed to, to produce them. So it'd just be a made of the government saying, okay, now you can produce those vaccines. And so the, what have been used for a long, long time in other countries, especially in the Middle East and China and Southeast Asia, is an inactivated vaccine, which is which is given to the chicks in a hatchery. That's been around for a long time. And that's mainly H9, because H9 has been causing respiratory disease in commercial chickens for 40 years. And uh, But see, now they have an H7 and there's an H5. But... Um, I think what we're going to see is if they're going to be in uh, recombinant for Falpox or HVT, more than likely they're going to be injected into the chicks, uh, you, probably in the hatchery. It's not to say that they couldn't do the Falpox at it is when the birds are pullets. Um, yeah, I mean, those, those are out the biggest companies in the world now. I don't want to name names, but they, in fact, have them. Two of the biggest companies in the world have, have the have the recombinant vaccines either in Falpox or HVT. And so you don't have to worry about those spreading out any, any um, shedding birds, shedding the virus. And, and in terms of, 
um, you know, sort of conditional or approval or um, reg- regulatory um, control of that. Uh, what what would you foresee in, in terms of USDA's regulations on that? Since we don't have them currently approved in the U.S. Yes, yes. A long time ago, there's actually in turkeys, there was a killed vaccine, but that goes back 30 years before your time, probably. But um, the problem with the vaccines, and, and uh, Dr. Swain will say this, is that they they don't totally stop replication. And so you've got that virus can then could continue to spread, even though they're not, gives you close to 100% protection against clinical disease, but not to virus shed. So I think they're probably going to do things like ring vaccination, Let's say you have an outbreak of a million birds or something on a broiler block. Right now, it's uh, 10 kilometers. Anything within 10 kilometers right now is um, quarantined and tested, right? And that's how we try to compartmentalize it. Would we see in the future that those flocks within that 10 kilometer, would they then be allowed to vaccinate in nothing outside of that? So I, I think that's I think that's what we're going to see. And the USDA, I think, is wait and see now and see what happens in Europe and these other countries. Um, you know, it, uh, I think eventually they're going to be kicking and screaming into it, doing it. They're not going to want to do it, but uh, eventually it's going to, to happen. And those basic breeders are, they're pretty, pretty locked down. So it's not like they're going to get the virus in there. So they still should be able, the basic breeders still should be able to to if there's outbreaks in that area, they should be able to export the eggs without a problem to companies around the world. And there's multiplier flocks all over the world too. And in terms of the vaccine in other species, um, our our colleagues in the turkey industry, the ducks have been heavily impacted in Pennsylvania, Indiana. Um, are those recombinant vaccines? labeled for use in, are they labeled in just chickens or are they? I don't really know, but I, I don't think there would be a problem because uh, you're basically taking the, a part of the, the hemagglutinin and then inserting it into a virus. It shouldn't make any difference, really. Uh, I mean, they may have to alter dosages, some may, but it, I don't see that. I mean, certainly they could do some safety and safety and efficacy studies. I mean, if it's a flu for chickens, then they, they would have to get it approved for these uh, other species. I, I don't think that would be a problem. Okay, excellent. And then what What other, you know, we always talk about that vaccination is a tool in our toolbox. Um, what other things do, do we need to look at as an industry in terms of trying to um, mitigate these outbreaks of avian influenza like we've seen in 2022? I think one thing that we have to be really careful for is live bird markets and not only live bird markets, but um, the show birds, you know, I, we, we do a fairly good job of testing birds before they get to the live bird market and during the live bird market. And if there are any outbreaks before or after the birds are terminated, uh, we don't allow birds in the live bird market to go back to the farms, which is a problem in foreign countries, you know, and they're mixing multiple ages in these in foreign countries, which we absolutely don't allow that here. We don't allow multiple species in the live bird market. But it's still always a possibility that it could get there, maybe by infecting a person. You know, I mean, because the virus can stay in the eye. So a worker, you know, it, we we don't. Um, in you know, in other uh, in California, there's an awful lot of uh, 
workers on the on those farms that that are not supposed to have uh, backyard birds. But I mean, there's always a possibility that they could and they could get it in there. The other thing is that the show birds. I know in Alabama and Georgia, first off, we don't allow live animal markets, but we do. We do oh, have. But these... we got flea markets and swap meets, and yes, they just call them right. different things. <laughs> yes. We have them. They're just, you know, under a different name. I know in Alabama, I'm sure Georgia's doing that too. They're, in fact, going out and testing these birds. And so you, it, just because you, you test it at that moment doesn't mean that they, it's kind of like uh, COVID. They, you know, maybe just didn't get it at the right time. So, uh, that is always going to be a problem as far as what I can tell, you know, is uh, because there's going to be birds that get in and out of those show, whatever you want to call them, that have not been tested. And uh, those individuals, obviously, that raise those birds that should not have exposure to commercial flocks. But, you know, our commercial farms, broilers are getting bigger and bigger, and there's so many that they have to actually bring in help. You know, it used to be mom and pop on the broiler farms now, but if You've got so many that you have to hire workers that come in and help. You know, the, that's, that could be another problem where these these workers that you're bringing in to, to do your broilers and uh, could be, you know, they could have a virus. So definitely biosecurity is an important detail. Always paying attention. Always paying attention. Yep. Um, biosecurity and surveillance, I think, are what we have. And then basically in the U.S., we've gone to ways to uh call them out incredibly fast the ventilation shutdown is, is just unbelievable but you know there are a lot of individuals say that that's not a really good thing to do it's the but you, you're you know you're you're calling those birds out to save the other birds and so uh it we're we're it, it is for disease control purposes i i think that it, it's a different um you know they have highly pathogenic avian influenza. Like you'll have a hundred percent mortality if you leave it there and then it will spread to the, to the farms around them, you know? So sometimes as veterinarians, we have to make decisions and choices um, for disease spread or disease control that, you know, so I think there's a lot of science and we have some more research that's coming out about that. And um, I think that uh, as an industry, we all want to do the best, you know, the best that we can by, uh, you know, we want to raise birds and we want to get them, you know, to market. But when you have uh, an outbreak of, of a highly infectious viral disease, uh, you know, you have to, to make some, some decisions and choices. And sometimes supply chain doesn't allow you to get the tools that you might need to use a different um, euthanasia method. So, there's, there's definitely, um, you know, I've, I've spoken to a lot of colleagues that have been through, you know, this latest outbreak and, and that is hard. Like it is very difficult and emotionally taxing in, in terms of, of making those decisions. So, um, we can all just support, uh, our, our fellow colleagues on that. Well, we, this government, we have, the industry has the money for indemnification, but there's a lot of other countries where they cannot call the birds out because they can't afford it. They can't. No, no. Um, and I think when we, you know, when you're, when, when you're, you know, we're talking high path avian influenza, you know, that, that limits our, you know, 
we want to get that under control. Um, when we look at low path avian influenza, I think you have some other options. Um, you know, you, you can wait until the birds stop shedding. You can do what's called controlled marketing. Um, you know, we, we have low path viruses, but when we get to these high path versions, that's when we have to do a lot of extra things. And it, it, in the U.S., you know, that's driven by what, uh, what APHIS has to say and not necessarily uh, what, what we would decide. So if we want that indemnification, we have to go by what the federal government says. Yeah, the problem with the low path H5N1, it has been shown to mutate on the same farm. So it's, you've got it low path and then three or four weeks later, it becomes high path. And, and that's been one reason APHIS is saying you need, you need to uh, pull the birds out. As an industry, you know, you, you, were, you were discussing that, um, you know, maybe, maybe perception of some of these things and, and culling, um, you know, is not, uh, not the greatest, um, sort of perception of our industry. So, um, another aspect of that is, you know, you'll, you'll see in popular press, you'll see things like, oh, you know, it's because they raise animals the way that they have, you know, we, we are portrayed in that, that our, the size of our industry is driving these viral things. Um, what what do you, what do you think about that in terms of you know does does our do our does our management you know tie into any of this at all? Well, I mean the free range birds, the small flocks, the backyard flocks, they're just as susceptible, and uh, those because of the fact that it's spread by these uh, free flying birds. Uh, I don't see the fact that we have uh, a half million birds on a farm as opposed to someone else that has a few thousand. They're both susceptible and. Those, in fact, um, it might be, in fact, that the, the, the birds, uh, it's spilling over from the flea-flying birds into the small flocks and then into the larger flocks. Uh, you can look at it either way. But um, I don't think the fact that we have that many birds, actually, I think that we have these many birds into a small house, into a small, or no, into a house, they're enclosed. We have a better way of controlling in and out. If, it's, if they're outside, you don't have in theory, in theory, we control yes. the in and out. Yes, yes. I think there's more movement on and off of farms clearly than we, um, you know, we know about sometimes. Um, well, I think we talked about influenza. Um, we've talked about that. So I'd be curious to shift gears in um, your background in immunosuppression. Um, I think that immunosuppression is still, you know, playing a major role in in much of, you know, the U.S. for sure, and if and you know for surely the the global industry, um, in terms of of things that that we can control, um, you know where do you seek because you you have been from the very beginning of controlling IBD and rheoviruses. We know rheoviruses can contribute to immunosuppression. You've researched merics. Um, how do all of these pl things play together to give us the clinical immunosuppression picture? Well, I mean, there are other non-respiratory diseases. We know mycotoxins. Uh, there, there are other, there are other um, uh, things that can get into the feed that can also, it's just not the viruses. But going back to just the viruses, it's basically um, immunizing uh, the, the hens to have the highest amount of titer, the most uniform titer for the longest amount of time to provide um, coverage for the, the chicks. 
And that's been the hallmark of bursal disease and rheoviruses. Uh, in the last 10 years is when we, we started, in fact, uh, vaccinating chickens for bursal disease broilers, because in the past they didn't want to do it because it was too expensive and there weren't really good vaccines. But now, as you know, that there are so many recombinants now. I mean, there's four or five recombinants out there that you've got bursal disease, you've got Newcastle bronchitis, LT, all cloned into it like HVT or pox. So uh, those are things now that you could do before where basically we were just looking to immunize the, the, the hens. But now uh, I think the problem with breaking or having problems with immune suppressions are due to antigenic variants from with bursal disease and, and rheoviruses. They're breaking through the maternal immunity that, that the hens are getting. And so you've got one or two things you either need to vaccinate the chicks or come up with whatever those viruses that are out there that are causing problems and then have them inserted into the pullet farm and pullet vaccines to provide uh, immunity either has to come on the back end or the front end. So, uh, and if, if there's a breakdown in either way, uh, and, and of course the vaccine companies like that because they're always having to come out with new vaccines. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, uh, and, and the, the companies out there are doing a really good job. You know, if, if you look, you listen to the top people, you know, like the Jackwoods with bronchitis or, or bursal disease, they're always out there doing surveillance for antigenic variants. And the, and the com commercial companies like themselves, uh, you know, with, with um, Callum Cookson and others are in, in concert with uh, the university professors. Okay, if you're having it, if you're having immune suppression, even though your hens are vaccinated three, four, or five times, and it's breaking through the meaning of the chicks, then you then you need to start isolating, identifying those viruses, do sequencing, and 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 figure out what it is, and and then that's going to have to be inserted uh, either in the pullets or or the broilers. But it, you're always it's always catch up. It's like you know you got something for a year, and then unfortunately that you need something else. Correct. We we talk about this a lot uh, in terms of like, you know, you're waiting for the next shoe to drop, you know, the next variant to emerge, you know, uh, whatever happens in terms of bronchitis or a new rheovirus, uh, you know, we're constantly doing surveillance for for um, rheovirus and uh, our, our friends in the turkey industry, I think, also struggle um, with rheovirus now. Um, which is something, you know, 20 years ago, you know, we didn't really think it did. But now there's rheoviruses really causing a lot of clinical illness in turkeys. Um, so it, if you could give advice to someone who's just starting in the industry, what are some key things that helped you get to where you are today? Do yes. what I did and find a mentor either mentor within the same university or some say without, you know, in another university or maybe within the USDA, follow what they're doing. When you go to the AAA meet, meetings or any uh, more local ones like the SCAD meeting or others, find out the research which is being done. Uh, the AAAP every year puts out like the top 10 diseases and that usually comes from uh, surveys that they they send out to the veterinarians that work in the poultry companies. What is your big problem? Is it bronchitis? And if if you're a young person, you have to go after the money. So and and right. 
If you're working on research, you got to write the grants. Yes. And these are multidisciplinary. They're multi-institutionalized. If you don't, if let's say you're at Auburn or some other place and you don't have an expert in that area, go to Georgia or some other place and get together and, and put in a grant, you know, and right. it may be something you might need an immunologist, a virologist, a pathologist, put them together and, and have the group that, that can compete because they're very competitive, uh, these grants. And so, um, that's what I would look at. And when I first started in, in Alabama, uh, I went to industry meetings uh, in, in Alabama, but the whole Southeast. And I listened to what they were telling me were the problems. And the other thing is I had a close relationship with Fred Hare in the diagnostic lab. And I think that would be if you, we were lucky at Auburn and we had something that they didn't have at Georgia. We in fact had the university, the poultry science. We, right. had, we had the College of Veterinary Medicine and we had the diagnostic lab, all three right. within a half mile. And that, that really yep. served us well, especially with Fred Hare. If I needed to have some pathology, he did the pathology, right? If I needed right. someone to isolate and identify the viruses, they're coming from the state lab. So uh, you, you need to f find out where you can get help. I mean, because you can't Sounds do it all like yourself. Building, building a network. No question. It's extremely no question. important. <laughs> yes, you got to make all those connections. Yeah, and it, it takes a certain person to, to be able to do that. You know, not everybody is a people person. You got to be out there and interact with other people and and really find, find one area and specialize in it. Because when I first came to Auburn, and a lot of professors do this, they jump all around trying to find something. Uh, you have to, find you have to find your specialty. Yeah, find your specialty, and but it, things will change. I started with bursal disease, and within the 42 years, I've gone through about five different viruses because it's the virus of the day. You know, they, they change. <laughs> and and you're you're responding to industry needs. Like you you are you know what what's out there and needs to be looked at. You your research was reflecting that. A lot of it has to do with uh, the um, the southeastern poultry group. You know, they have the veterinarians that get together, industry veterinarians, and they provide a good bit of research for scientists. And so you see what's on their list of what they're going to, to fund. And they may only fund five or six programs. And whatever that program is, you, you, you go after those funds and, and uh, hopefully you will get them. Yes. Yes. It's time for our famous three. So if you, uh, do you have uh, like books, like uh, do you have either um, like leadership or training or poultry, you know, books that you recommend to like when you had students, uh, a lot of people recommend certain things. Oh, I, you know, I live by this. Um, anything like that that you would recommend to listeners? Well, the diseases of poultry are mainly for researchers that have the money to do. If you're just starting out, the, the AAAP has a number of small books that they're, $150 or something like that, that are, that are, they're, they have one for pathology and then they have one that's uh, diagnostic techniques and then they have one that's uh, just happened to do with various other things. So those would be the places to start. And if, if you got a grant that you just add that to the grant, you know, if you got a grant and you want to buy the, the more expensive diseases of poultry one, or you can borrow it, it another person who was in the department if he in fact cannot afford it at the time because the book's gotten pretty expensive but they're there but the thing about it is you can go online now and there's such an incredible amount of information either coming from basic breeders 
vaccine companies. There's things called uh, SlideShare. We actually can go there and, and get see um, slideshows where, where professors have put together things for teaching. And you can use that for your teaching methods. Uh, so, I mean, there's a lot of information out there. So if you know if you cannot afford the AAAP books uh, for some reason or another, you know get this other information and, and then hopefully you will you will be able to. I was lucky enough to to have grants that I that every year paid for uh, AAAP and paid for poultry science and paid for all of them. Right, so I got all these free journals. And and when I retired, I had journals that went avian diseases that went back to date to. Zero. <laughs> it was just like the first one that was out there. First diseases of poultry, and you know, I I gave them to uh, individuals that were in our department, and uh, that I think should be done. Individuals that are going to retire, you know, give the journals away. But the thing is, now the journals are all online, so you don't have to do that. <laughs> I mean, if you're a member of AAAP or poultry, you get them all, so you don't you in fact don't have to buy those books. But you know, if you want to isolation. Uh, Determination of Poultry Pathogens, which is a triple IP book. Yes, they just you, redid that. You, yeah, get that book. And it's not that expensive. And it, it's good something book. that's helpful. Yeah, it is good. And the thing is, they keep them fairly up to date. I mean, obviously, okay. the way things turn out, you know, you if you have, your book's a few years old, you may you may need to get some additional information. But you can get that from a lot the researchers that are out there, you know. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us this afternoon, Joe. It was good to virtually see you. <laughs> and uh, hopefully um, we can uh, maybah see you in person in Atlanta, IPPE so. maybe in January. Really yeah, I really right. do. I look forward That'll to it. That'll be awesome. All right. Have a great afternoon. Thank you so much. Same to you. Thanks, Joe. Bye-bye.